Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, you can follow along uh, and your Bibles are on the screen. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were left we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us and we longed to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Um, so first today, I want to thank uh, Benny and Taya for joining us. And I want to thank everybody else for joining us this morning, too. If you don't know who I am, my name is Brayden. Most of you may know me as Emily's husband instead of Brayden, which is totally okay with me because that's a great title to have. But uh, she's the one who first brought me here about two years ago, I think. And today is my first day speaking, so if it doesn't go well, then you know who to blame. So uh, we're in the middle of a series right now called Christian Faith in Context. And um, basically what we've been doing is looking at First Thessalonians as an example of what a church can do in a context that doesn't really uh, always fit with Christianity. So some of the questions Matt has been trying to answer through this series, I shouldn't say trying to answer, I should say answering in the series, are questions like, have you ever felt like the Christian faith is incompatible with the world you inhabit? Or is it possible for the Christian faith to survive and thrive in a world that's indifferent or even hostile? What does such a faith look like at home, at work, and in other places where Christ's people find themselves? And finally, what kind of church does it take to sustain that vision? Uh, all very easy questions that he left for me to answer. So um, the summarized answer we've been giving in the previous sermons is that faith, love, and hope mark the community where Jesus Christ is Lord, leading to lives of holiness and hope in a sometimes hostile world. 
And so we've really been reading Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica to explore that idea. And we've talked about how Paul and his missionaries traveled to the city to instruct the church there during a time of hostility against Christianity, where the Roman Empire wasn't exactly friendly with it. And now Paul is writing them this letter that we just read from to check in on them. Uh, but what, what we haven't really addressed in the story yet is the fact that long before Paul even wrote this letter, he and the missionaries had to leave the church in the middle of the instruction to them due to persecution. And so you can kind of see that in Paul's language as a result. He didn't finish his instruction. He missed them dearly, but he couldn't return to them, and communication was practically non-existent. And so he had no idea how they were doing. All he knew that uh, was that their city didn't like what they were doing, and he just hoped the best for them. Uh, and this is the important context of the attitude we see Paul display in the passage we read today. And it's going to help us answer the question, what does this passage specifically tell me about living as a Christian in my culture? Um, I'll give you the short answer now, and I think it's that it shows us the importance of sacrificial relationships with those around us. Um, and I have to confess, I don't feel like the most qualified person to speak on relationships because I think I'm one of the biggest introverts in the room. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember how in Lord of the Rings, the very first conflict is Bilbo Baggins getting stressed out because somebody knocks on his door, but that's <laughs> definitely me. I'm Bilbo. And you probably also thought today, since Matt was gone, you weren't going to get any Lord of the Rings metaphors in the sermon, but as long as I'm here... That's going to be going. So uh, I say that to say I'm going to be learning alongside all of you today. But first I want to examine just how Paul showed this sacrificial love in his personal relationship with the church. Uh, we can see in his every word how invested he was in these people. He says things like, I was torn away from you. I have intense longing for you. I've made every effort to come to you and so on. And when I first read this, I was like, man, he sounds like a lovesick teenager texting a girl he met like on summer vacation or something. But uh, that's kind of the spirit he has. It's, it's much wiser in this case, I think, but the feeling is there. Um, and all of the language here that he uses shows us that he gave away his heart to this church. Um, what does giving away your heart actually mean? One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, says that to give your heart away is to love someone, to personally invest in them so that your joy is irretrievably bound up with them. Uh, to put it in a less romantic metaphor for the uh, logical thinkers in the room, it's like investing in a business so much that you will feel the consequences if the business does not succeed. Uh, Paul actually couldn't rest until he knew about the status of this church for this reason. And after Timothy comes back with good news about them, Paul says, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And it's crazy to me that he couldn't even live properly without knowing that they were following God and prospering like he wanted them to. Uh, the scripture says they are his hope, his joy, his glory, his crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. And yeah, that amount of affection is crazy to me. It's kind of alien, to be honest, because I do not naturally work that way. I know some people do. My wife, Emily, for example. Uh, one example I always think of is I think we went to the grocery store one time to get like one item for dinner. And next thing I know, Emily passes by this lady that she doesn't know and compliments her shoes. And that's when I knew. I was like, this is going to be a 30-minute discussion. 
minimum. And usually in those cases, I'll like go find the camping section and just, you know, like set up shop in the display chairs or something. But uh, I was just this time, you know, just struck like, how can these two people who don't even know each other just like, they know every detail after like five minutes. It's like, where'd you go to college? What's your favorite color? What kind of animal do you have? And I'm like, babe, you know more about this person than you know about me, and we're married. But uh, whichever one of us you're more like, I think this passage gives us a new level of affection and personal investment that challenges us. Uh, for one, we see that a short time frame is not a deal breaker for Paul's love. And we know from last week that Paul wasn't invested in this relationship based on what he would get out of it. He didn't spend time with them just to get glory, money, or status. He hasn't spent time with them, or he spent time with them because he has a genuine desire to see these people become the best versions of themselves they can be. And I think that is the essence of sacrificial love. His joy is irretrievably bound up with them. He knows they're probably still confused about some things. He knows their city doesn't like what they're doing. He knows they'll be tempted to forsake the truth that he left with them to make things easier for themselves. And that's why he worries so much for them after he leaves. His heart is tied to theirs, and his well-being is tied to their well-being. Uh, why does he act this way? I think it's because it's the same love that God showed to him first. That's the same love that gave him such a hopeful perspective on life that he wants to share it with everyone else. He wants them to experience the hope and love of Christ just as he has. Uh, but you might be asking yourself, that's well and good for Paul, but why should I love the people around me sacrificially? If I don't really feel passionate in that same way that Paul did, then what does this mean for me? And I think I have several answers to those questions, but I'm going to pull two from Jesus' own words because you'll be less likely to argue with them, I think. <laughs> Uh, the first is that loving people in this way fulfills an innate purpose we have to be salt of the earth uh, or to preserve the livelihood of everyone around us. This love is not only what Christian fellowship is built on, it's what any healthy community is built on. Sacrificial love begets sacrificial love, and the more cords that are woven into a strand, the less likely it is to break. And we know that the human body works this way uh, sacrificially. In, any part, uh, in order for any part to survive, it has to be dedicated to the other part's success. Um, Paul references this elsewhere to the church in Corinth when he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Uh, but I'll be honest, the way I usually think of it is, is like the mighty Morphin Power Rangers, I think, where it's like one of the Power Rangers gets in a big robot that serves as one body part of an even bigger robot. Uh, and I'm like, if the guy piloting the left leg just decides he's done for the day and doesn't want to hold the other ones up, the whole thing topples down and Mecha Godzilla takes over the world or something like that. So. Not the most biblical metaphor, but I think it works for me. Um, but I think this type of love is a primary reason why the church in Thessalonica actually does so well at thriving together in the middle of a fractured culture. Without proper love, they could have easily turned elsewhere to something they thought might fulfill them, but inevitably leave them unsatisfied. Um, and if that answer feels a little too utilitarian to you, here's the second one. Beyond being salt of the earth, sacrificial love also enables us to be the second metaphor that Jesus uses, uh, the light of the world. I was really lucky because Benny referenced salt and light earlier, so he kind of paved the way for me. 
But being light of the world, Jesus says, if we let our light shine before others, he says, they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. In this way, good deeds and sacrificial love aren't just semantics. They don't just make us feel good and stop on earth. When we die, they actually bear eternal significance. This type of relationship gives people an everlasting hope in God that stretches far beyond this life. It shows them how Christ has loved them and gives them a vision to love others in the same way. It gives a motivation that holds much more weight than any other reason we might have to treat each other well. Now the alternatives to these two reasonings are to let the lives of everyone around us get worse instead of improve and to withhold from them a hope that gives the truest, most complete purpose and fulfillment they could ever have. It's to miss out on a chain reaction of mutual improvement by never even lighting the match. And it's to keep the directions to yourself when someone else isn't sure where to go. Now here we come to kind of the big problem of loving sacrificially, and that's the fact that it's not always easy. Uh, and in fact, it's rarely easy. Uh, to me, especially, Paul's attitude here seems hard to replicate uh, because it isn't naturally a response for a lot of us. It's one that takes effort. Um, one reason this is true of me is because I'm to some extent affected by our culture, and sometimes our culture can be tempted to treat relationships sort of as transactions, whether we know it or not. Uh, sometimes when we decide how much we're going to invest in a relationship, um, we should try to gauge how much we're going to get in return. Is the payoff worth the amount of comfort I'm sacrificing? And in the past, when I was worse at committing to social endeavors, you know, I would come up with some pretty creative excuses. I would like open the weather app and be like, I don't know, man, it's like 20% chance of rain tonight. I might have to, to stay in. And of course, you know, the other person's always like, yeah, whatever, come on now. Uh, but many times we may rationalize letting a relationship go slack because we think the cost we've spent outweighs the profit we've received. And sometimes it's not so obvious that we're acting this way. If I can use myself as another example, I lived in New York City for three years and it is notoriously hard to make friends there. Um, and you might be thinking, you know, come on, there's like eight million people on one tiny little island, of course you make friends there. And, and I would say, oh no, it's much harder than that. Uh, I was uncharacteristically extroverted when I went there. My brain went into like emergency social mode. And I did make a lot of friends, but I learned one major obstacle to making friends in New York City is everybody leaves in two months. It doesn't know how you know them. It doesn't matter if you're married to them even. After two months, they're gone. And so every two months you have to get like a new barber, a new hot dog guy on the street. I didn't even get a dentist while I was there because, you know, Emily is still mortified at that fact, but uh, as a result, you know, I started becoming less and less willing to invest in new people because my thought process was if they're going to end up leaving anyway, what's the point in me, you know, taking my one day off to go and, and talk to them when they might be gone soon? Um, but what I was really saying was what's the point of loving them sacrificially when there's no guarantee I'm going to get a return on it? Uh, this is a direct contrast to the attitude of love we see presented here uh, and the rest of the Bible. Obviously, Jesus didn't go to the cross to experience the suffering he did because he was going to get a profit from it. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He took on a debt for us, and he didn't prioritize his comfort over our well-being. 
And Paul imitates this behavior too. He knew he might only get to see this church for a very short amount of time, and yet it's clear he gives so much of himself to them that he can't even live properly back home without wondering whether or not they're flourishing in Christ. Uh, if I would have loved those people in New York so sacrificially, I wouldn't have cared about whether they were leaving or not. I would have cared that they were better people when they left. And this is a remarkable challenge uh, for us, and it, it may prompt the thought in you, well, how can we actually practically do this? You know, it's a nice ideal, and it might work for some, but maybe uh, not for me. Um, and I'll give you three points about developing the type of love in this passage, because every sermon is supposed to have three points. <laughs> the point number one is look at Christ's love for you. In a minute, I'm going to talk about how it's easier to listen to somebody sharing truth with you if they've treated you with love first. But, um, sorry, I think something similar is true for us emulating that love that Christ and Paul display. Uh, it's one thing for me to stand here and tell you that you should act sacrificially in love. I can tell you about how we're called to do it, how it strengthens both you and other believers, how it gives you hope to live, uh, all of the purposes and benefits, but it's another thing entirely for you to personally experience how God has loved you and to let that love drive the love for others. Uh, Jesus Christ has given us such a perfect example of selfless love that it always has the power to move us towards the love in this passage. No matter how introverted we are, no matter our past history of relationships, if we read about God's love for you, listen to things about it, pray about it, and talk to God himself about it, uh, don't just hear it, really go on a journey to experience it yourself. And it may not be quick and it may not be easy, but the more we feel and understand God's love for us, the better we are at mirroring it. Point number two to sacrificially loving people is not to withhold the truth from them. And we're going to get more into the truth side of this letter in the next couple of weeks, I think, but I thought it prudent to mention this now. Uh, if you're nice to someone, but you withhold the complete truth from them, the love you're offering them isn't complete. Um, and that means it's the right time, when it's the right time to do so, edifying people with godly wisdom is a crucial part of fully loving them. Um, I'm obviously not saying you need to get a bullhorn and go around and quote Leviticus at them like all the time, you know. But if you see people in need of guidance, uh, struggling with something that the gospel gives us an answer to, uh, don't keep it to yourself. Um, I'm constantly reminded this principle of a friend of mine who likes to blame me uh, first for all of his wrong decisions, you know. If he goes on a, a date with the wrong girl, he goes, man, you, you should have known she was terrible for me. Why did you let me do that? And I'm like, well, you know, I didn't want to risk upsetting you or something. And then uh, sometimes these are kind of fair, but most recently he was like, man, I shouldn't have bought that car. That was way too expensive. Why did you let me do that? And I'm like, I didn't even know you were shopping for a car, dude. Come on now. And a lot of those fall into the category of just general advice, but there are times when the circumstances are much more important or even much more dire. And in cases like this, C.S. Lewis says that our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. This is no mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love. The idea of sharing potentially uncomfortable truths probably makes a lot of us nervous, myself especially. But I think we can be encouraged by the way that Jesus does it. 
If you look throughout the Bible, many times you'll notice that Jesus opens with an act of love before he explains the truth behind what he's doing. He heals the leper before he tells him to go to the priest and tithe. He washes his disciples' feet before he tells them he's going to be crucified soon and how they need to take up his mantle and care for people in the same way. Um, sometimes it's the opposite, depending on if people need truth before love for Jesus. But in the cases like I listed, Jesus' genuine love for somebody paves the way for them to see the value of his truth. His personal actions have already backed up the legitimacy of his future words. People trust his intentions because he's loved them in a way that doesn't earn him comfort, status, or anything else but them growing closer to God and flourishing. Uh, Paul opens with love in this letter too, but what does he say at the end of the passage? Uh, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It sounds like a Darth Vader line to me. It's like really cheery and then it gets really ominous. But So he goes into the truth after that, but what he does first is he opens with love. And uh, as renowned theologian Mary Poppins says, the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I've found that when you make it clear that you genuinely love someone, they'll be hard-pressed not to at least listen to what you have to say when you find an opportunity to speak biblical truth to them. Our hearts drive a lot of the change we make in our lives, and so love has a way of coaxing that change out. Uh, Tim Keller also says, sacrificial love is the main reason that anybody in the Roman Empire even listened to Christianity's claims in the first place, uh, because it's not like there were a lot of people standing around, you know, wanting to get thrown into the arena with the lions. It's they saw the genuine love of Christ change their lives, and so too with us. Uh, it's worth stating that obviously we aren't called to love people just to gain influence over them. Uh, if you're tempted to love people for that reason, then I would politely advise you to listen to Tyler's sermon last week, or he'll take you to lunch and talk to you about it. But I will give you one more way, tangible way, to avoid what can sometimes be a subtle desire to manipulate through love or get paid back through love. And that's our last point, point number three, which is to imagine the best possible outcome for someone. Uh, if there are any pessimists in the room, now is your chance to cast off your chains and be an idealist. Uh, committing yourself to someone else's glory means at least two things. First, it's to imagine how wonderful and complete this person might be one day through Christ. Second, it's to do whatever you can to help them get there. Um, if I can borrow one more thing from Tim Keller, he gives a simple metaphor, which is uh, we must always see the butterflies that the caterpillars will turn into. I don't recommend saying that to people because we don't like being compared to caterpillars usually, and ugly ducklings is even worse. Uh, so perhaps a more eloquent explanation comes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror or corruption such as you now meet in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary 
people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. God can make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for nothing less. God has given us the opportunity to help the people around us to this eternal glory that Lewis mentions. When we invest our personal relationships with sacrificial love, we help others take steps towards becoming the best possible versions of themselves in eternity with Christ. And though it isn't always easy, that is the holy duty we are called to. Let's pray. God, first, I'd like to thank you for all of the sacrifices you've made for us. We truly have no better teacher in this area than you. And I thank you that we get to enjoy the vast benefits of your love. It may seem daunting to reflect even a fraction of that love, but today I ask that you give us a compelling new vision to make sacrifices in our personal relationships. Help us see the people around us as images of you that we can sharpen and be sharpened by. Remind us daily of the eternal glory that we can help lead these people toward. And reveal to us ways that we can be made better and grow closer to you as well. Help us love others first and selflessly just as you have. And keep the wonderful hope of Christ foremost in our hearts as our motivation for loving your people this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.